are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This week's episode of the Traditional Outdoors Podcast is brought to you by Everglades Angling and Eco Tours. Everglades Angling specializes in backcountry kayak fishing trips in Florida's Everglades, but also offers friendly kayak tours in Miami. Jim Desias, the founder of Everglades Angling and Eco Tours, has been guiding in South Florida since 2003. Jim will guide you as you paddle your way through mangrove tunnels that open into hidden lakes with rolling tarpon and eager snook. Cast your line and hang on as your flower lure is attacked by aggressive snook or tarpon. This is close quarters fishing where you can often see your offering get eaten, often followed by the hooked fish going airborne. Closer to Miami, Everglades Angling offers kayak trips for peacock bass. Peacock bass attract anglers from all over the world because of their aggression and fighting ability. In the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area, Jim offers three-hour kayak tours that are great for the entire family. He calls these his unplugged tours, and they have become popular with folks wanting to connect with their kids or spouse in an outdoor, distraction-free setting. Although close to the Miami skyline, you'll feel as if you're in a remote location with incredible bird life, manatees, and the occasional dolphin sighting. For more information, visit www.evergladesangling.org and follow Jim on Facebook and Instagram at Everglades Angling and on his YouTube channel, Jim Dusias. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Angel. I'm joined again tonight by my good buddy, Mr. Nick View. How's it going, buddy? It's going good, man. We finally got sunshine in Michigan. I'm finally going to go fishing this weekend, and I'm tick-free. Everything is going great. <laughs> well, that's a, the tick-free part is a plus, I guess. Yep, they're all gone. I'm still here. It's good to hear. <laughs> So you're you're so even after all of this, after the the beautiful um, mild winter we had, the early spring, you've been sitting in snow and rain and everything else, and you're going to get out in the water before me, and that's just very irritating. I'm I'm uh, probably going to be tied up all weekend with uh, doing some things around the house that I've been neglecting that need to get done, and you know with. Uh, Bella wrapping up high school and and starting to get into the full college preparation stages. Uh, I don't know. I may not. I may not get to hit the water until fall. I don't know. Yeah. You, so I envy you. Well, you don't envy me too hard. Um, I I wish I could have been in the water way before this. And actually, a lot of my buddies are already there catching fish right now. I'm seeing. I'm watching Facebook, and we're not going to be joining them till Friday. Um, which is kind of a bummer, but at least, uh, we're, he- we're headed up to the Asable and Grayling and, uh, I've never actually fished the Asable, even though living close to it all my life. And, uh, it's a Graceland for a lot of people really. So I'm really looking to chase some Browns down there and, and, uh, have some fun with some friends. So it'll be a big experience for me. It'll definitely be a really good first time. Although everybody tells me down here that dude, if you fish the Asable once, you're not going to want to fish here anymore. You're going to want to spend all your time in gas money driving there and, fishing there so i guess we'll just have to see how that goes but yeah you know it is what it is i know both of us kind of rolled off of 2018 thinking 2019 is going to be incredible and then both of us hit a wall of just stuff we (laughs) had to do and like it doesn't seem very awesome so far (laughs) life pulled out a big stick and just smacked me right in the forehead with it i mean that's basically where i've been since 
since since deer season ended, which was middle January. I mean, it's just every weekend there's there's something that has to be done, mm-hmm. or or the weather's just horrible. Um, so yep, but but it'll turn around one of these days. It will. I'm not complaining. It will. I mean, you just got to enjoy every opportunity you get, right? You do, uh, you do, and I, you know, it's. Uh, if I can get enough done Saturday, I may try to slip out for just a little while Sunday morning because I, I I've got to go. I really want to get that three weight out on the water. I still have not. I've, I've taken it out of the tube. That's it. So, well, uh, uh, I was going to tell you that you know friend of the, friend of the show Bob Bones. Um, he's dri- He's the one <laughs> driving with me up north, and uh, he uh, he he met with with another friend of the show, Mister Scott Spray, and is working on a working on a glass rod right now. So I'm insanely jealous about that. So speaking of which, and I'll go ahead and get this out here, and then we're going to jump into our content for tonight. But I just want you to know that somehow, every time you mention, um, what was it? What's the name you've given him? Bob again? Bones. Bob Bones. So every time you mention that, as soon as the podcast goes live within a few hours, I'm the one that gets the text. <laughs> and the last time I, I explained, I said, look, I, that was all Nick. I haven't said that. He said, yeah, but you didn't edit it out. I'm like, so how am I getting blamed for this? Well, would he rather so, be a bleep? Uh, you know what? Maybe we'll do that. Maybe I'll just bleep it this time and let him, you know, or, or just bleep enough of it that you can tell what it is. And I can say, man, I did the best I could. Uh, so, yeah. I, I'd say we'd have to have him on the show sometime, <laughs> but we're, that, no, we're not. <laughs> uh yeah we'll, we'll 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 take that offline that's a topic for another another time so <laughs> anyway but uh, i do want to get into our guest who's been hanging out patiently listening to us carry on a bunch of junk but uh so we we i want to give a little backstory about how this this came about for a couple of reasons um you know, we, we, we've had some trouble lining up guests, which we talked about, and we, we sat down and did a, an episode, which we had, we had talked about doing for a while, um, encouraging people to get involved in, in various organizations. And uh, I don't remember the episode number, but it was the, you know, don't be a wallflower, get involved. <clears throat> and at some point in that discussion, and I'll be honest, I really can't tell you how we got on the topic because we typically go down a few rabbit trails on just about everything we try to talk about. But one of the things that came up was somehow we started talking about uh, etiquette and, you know, pulling up and, and parking your, your vehicle and, and, you know, somebody not respecting that and, and parking right beside of you, even though it's public land and everybody's got equal access and all that stuff that, you know, sometimes it's just nice if people would, would move on if they, in, and and I, we were also talking about the the um, issues you've had turkey hunting in in Michigan on on public land. And man, I must admit, I I have nothing to compare to some of those stories. But so I get this I get this email. I'm sitting at my desk one day, and and my my email notification came out, and I pulled it up. Uh, and the 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 person I'm going to introduce in just a second uh, had sent me an email, and uh, told us. Loved the podcast, but wanted to throw a positive spin out on that conversation that we had had, uh, and just went into um, hunting in the in the back country and and pulling up to a, a a trailhead, you know, and and how it's it's sometimes a good thing because you run into people that can that can give you advice and and point you in the right direction and and those things, and it is something that we overlooked. Uh, and, and I think I responded that way to the email and said, you know, you're absolutely right. There are definitely, 
uh, good situations, and I've I've had those myself. Um, I think I did say something about the one difference is, you know, when we're in the east, we're typically talking about a few hundred acres on a on a piece of public property, and uh, I've hunted out west where there was millions of acres <laughs> in a piece of public property. So where you park your vehicle really just doesn't matter. But anyway. Um, in the email, there was a, a, a signature at the bottom that led to a website, and I followed that website, and I really liked what I saw. And one thing led to another, and I invited um, this individual onto the show. So I'm, I'm giving all this backstory with one uh, lesson to our listeners. If you hear something and you want to comment on it, shoot us an email. You just never know that, you know, you may end up being a, a guest on the show, which I, I'm, I'm hoping – our guest tonight's going to be glad they chose to do that. But with all of that said, I'm going to introduce Miss Katie, and I'm I'm going to try my best to pronounce your last name right. I meant to ask you before we started recording, I didn't, but is it is it Burgert? It is Burgert. I, awesome, you nailed it. Well. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Katie. Thank you, Steve. We are we are very excited to have you. I know uh, Nick's been away for a couple of weeks for various reasons, mainly scheduling. Um, but when I forwarded the uh, I forwarded your website to him a couple of days ago to look at, and I've gotten several messages from him since then. But your website is Fish Untamed, uh, and it's it's focused on uh, fly fishing in the backcountry. Uh, and obviously, the first thing that a lot of people would recognize is you're a woman. So uh, I know there's some different perspectives on a lot of this because I've, I've looked through the website. Um, but I guess to start off, why don't, why don't you tell um, Nick and myself and everybody listening kind of, you know, how you started Fish Untamed, what was your driver, and maybe even get in a little bit of what, you know, what's your goal with the, with the website? Sure. Um, so I started it just over a year ago, I think last April. Um, and I had no previous website experience at all. I just kind of, uh, I, I used to work over the summer um, during college as a guide. I'd come out to Colorado and uh, do a couple months out here, go back, do a couple semesters and come back out here. And after college, I came out for my last summer and did my three months. And of course, at the end of the season, I had to move on and actually get a real job or I wouldn't have been able to support myself for the next nine months. So I took a full-time job and now only get to kind of help out up there on the weekends. Uh, so I kind of found myself missing being able to be out all the time. Like even, you know, even when I wasn't fishing, just being able to be out there with other people who were into fishing was uh, kind of scratching my itch for me. And so when that went away, uh, I kind of got, I don't know, cabin fever of some sort, not being able to fish all the time. So I thought maybe a good way to kind of scratch that itch when I'm not able to be out on the water would be to uh, kind of share that with others and talk about it online. Because uh, at least then I could I'd keep myself in the mindset and get excited about it and things like that. So kind of on a whim, I I just signed up for a like a blog and started writing and thought maybe it would peter out after a couple of months, but I found myself getting kind of more energized by it and but, and I found myself uh, fishing more just because I was getting so hyped up about it. So I was finding time to get out and fish, um, kind of just for for ideas to write about and uh, stories and things like that. So I I've been running it for the past year and no hopes of uh, stopping at this point, but. Uh, the future, I'm not really sure where I want to take it. 
as of right now, I'm still just trying to kind of come up with ideas and content and uh, just try to keep myself on my schedule so I can so I can keep at it. So and I'm, I'm pretty sure Nick's going to follow this same line of thinking. So you've created all of the content that's on that website in a year. Yes. Uh, God, I feel like such good, a slacker. Good Lord. <laughs> well, honestly, it's just one a week. I do one a week. I started getting jealous when she said schedule. <laughs> she schedule posts. Like I remember when I scheduled posts. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's no, that's impressive. Like I it does think, come in waves. I I'll like you know. So for this week, I've got the house to myself. So I've been batching a lot of future content because throughout the month of June, I've got a lot of plans to be out of town. So I'm probably not going to do much work in June. <laughs> So have you had to go like backwards to write about anything? Like, did you journal a bunch of things? And then like, you know, when you started the blog said, oh, I got to tell that story or, or whatever. Or is this just recent stuff? I guess I and, and forgive me if I haven't I haven't gone that far back yet. I mean, I basically binged it once I saw it and I've been reading as much as I could. But there's a lot on there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've thought about doing some like, you know, retroactive posts I haven't done any I, I found I don't actually like writing stories about myself very much I do when I have done something that I think is worth writing about like go on a cool trip or something but um, I get I get a little weirded out writing about myself and I don't think it comes off very well I prefer to do like informational informational stuff about conservation or how to's or things like that um, so I haven't done any retroactive because I'm, I'm barely getting through the what I'm up to right now posts, but I've thought about it. Um, maybe if I run low on content, I'll kind of dive back into some of the some of the better trips I've taken over the years. Well, well, take it from me. The more you write about yourself, the more used to it you get. <laughs> <You'll>, <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> you, you'll be fine. It is it is a weird thing, though. Like you you don't want to come off too, you know, like, oh, look at me, look at me, look at me. And, and but a lot of people don't take it that way. Like they just, yeah, uh, you know, they relate to it immediately, usually. So, yeah. And I, I, I find it hard to kind of transfer over from the kind of informational, uh, here's spreading the, the how to's or the tips or things like that. And then take that over into a story that you kind of want it to be a little, I guess, poetic in a sense, you know, you want it to be meaningful and impactful and, um, kind of stick with somebody. And it's kind of hard to to uh, switch back and forth between those two styles of writing. And I think I just tend to lean more toward the more scientific uh, informational style. Well, for sure. You do it really well. And, and that's it. you learn stuff from your blog, which is good. So, I mean, you have, you have actually, you're, you're really varied for writing in a specific style for informational. Like there's a lot of, a lot of di- different things on there. So it's, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. Well, thank you. In looking at some of the stories or some of the articles, I won't call them stories, some of the articles, um, and I'll tell you the the one that just immediately grabbed my attention as I was scrolling through was the uh, handling fear uh, while solo backpacking. Mm-hmm. And I would like to ask you a little bit about that. You know, what, what prompted you to write that story? Um, and I'd like your thoughts on, because... I actually spent the first extended session in the backcountry uh, this past fall, and I had someone with me. And mm-hmm. Nick and I were talking about this before you hopped on the call. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify it as fear, and that's not a man thing because Nick and I were talking about this. You know, most guys would 
never admit that they were afraid whether they were or not. So it's <laughs> it's not about that. It, I would be the first to tell you, though, there were more than one time, more times than one that I had apprehension. Um, you know, looking up at the at the big sky and you're you're, you know, in hundreds of thousands of acres of timber mm-hmm. and you start thinking about for me it was thinking about you know my family um my obligations and you know if i took a wrong turn or my gps died or i lost my gps it was the the, the little things it wasn't necessarily a, a panic feeling or fear it was just apprehension and thinking about what could happen mm-hmm. um but I, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm asking is, you know, how did that play into the article that you wrote? And then I would also like to know, you know, how you feel it, is it the same or does it, is it different being a female? I would say it, it's probably different because I can't say I've ever been thinking about like my family or anything like that. I'm, I'm almost always worrying about myself and <laughs> making it out alive. Um, and I don't know if it's if strictly being a woman. Um, I'd say that definitely plays into a bit of it just because I do think about other people. I'd say what I get the most scared of is encountering someone I don't want to encounter in the woods. Uh, obviously, after dark, you know, I, I feel like if you're alone in the woods, it's hard to say that you're not at least kind of thinking about, you know, animals, especially if you're in bear country or anything like that. But um, having never had any sort of um, I guess scary moment. I guess we had one last summer where where we had encountered an animal late at night. Um, but once we pitched the tent, it was it kind of became a non-issue. I'd say mostly what I what I worry about is encountering somebody, and then if if something went south, you know, you're out there alone. No one really knows where you are. They might know what area you're in, um, but no one would really be there to find you. And I I think just knowing that you're probably if if you were to encounter a kind of a bad egg in the woods that that you might be the prime target as a solo female traveler uh and that being said i've never actually had an experience that you know would would lead me to to feel this i think it's just something that's kind of a natural uh reaction when you're alone in the woods sure so i i guess that's kind of what prompted the article and i i honestly probably wrote it a little bit to convince myself because i still find myself getting scared pretty much every time I backpack alone, but I still force myself to go out and do it because uh, I, I figure the more I do it, the, the better I'm going to feel about it. And I think writing this was kind of to justify that as well to myself to go through. And, you know, I mentioned in that article about how the, the odds of you uh, encountering, you know, a, a bad person or getting eaten by a bear or any of those things in the woods is far lower than your odds of um, having a bad experience like in town or or in the woods, you know, tripping and falling and breaking a leg like that's way more likely to happen to you. And so I think kind of writing that down to share with others was also kind of for myself to remind myself of that next time I go out. And, you know, it's funny, you you kind of went exactly where I was where I was wondering, you know, if, if that was in the back of your mind, because, you know, I. I look at it, I guess, more realistically in some in some ways. I mean, when you really when you really get down to it, um, I encounter a, a grizzly in the backcountry, 
and you encounter a grizzly in the backcountry, we've pretty much got the same odds. <laughs> um, We're both doomed at that point. <laughs> right. Uh, for all intents and purposes. But then I started, as I was looking through, you know, read, I didn't read word for word the article, but I was, I was kind of, you know, glancing through it and reading through it as I was doing like four other things, which is typically the way I get anything done. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about it, and and the the exact thing that you brought up, you know, are you going to encounter a, a bad egg while you're out there? And I think, obviously, I and I've I've got three daughters and a wife. I don't want to be in a woman's head. I really don't. Uh, that's one place I don't want to go. But <laughs> if I try to think about it from a woman's perspective, I think that's exactly where my mind would go. But at the same time, I got to thinking about it, well, you know, really and truly. I could run into a bad egg uh, out there that, you know, was a serial killer or, or wanted to steal my gear or who, I mean, who knows? I mean, it, it's the, the, I guess there are some differences, but there, when I really started thinking about analyzing, it wasn't as much as I thought it was. Um, right. And the odds of, the odds of coming across, I mean, when you're in the backcountry anyway, like you, you don't usually see a ton of people. And even when you do, the odds of somebody actually being out there just wandering around at random looking for someone is, is so low. Um, but it's just something that I, I, I want to say it's got to be an instinct of some sort because it's, it's just something that you can't really kick. And I do obviously think a, a little bit of fear is healthy. Um, but just the more you do it, the more the more you kind of realize that you're probably worried for nothing. Sure. But I think having a little bit of that fear just kind of keeps you on your toes. And, and knowing that you're aware of what's going on, I think makes you feel a little safer. You know, if I, if I go a while and realize like, wow, I have not been kind of on guard, I think like that, that wouldn't be a good situation to be caught in. But as long as I'm kind of aware of my surroundings, I'm like, I would probably be able to at least mildly defend myself in the case of any sort of bad situation. Sure. And and that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. Plus, we, and you and you. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Nick. Just a couple more things, and I'll I'll hush for a minute. Uh, so, two things I will mention. Uh, you know, being out there and and the chances of running across people are are low. I would I would agree with that. But funny story, Tom and I hiked in uh, over four miles out in the middle of nowhere, no trails, no nothing, and before we even got our our camp set up. Uh, the afternoon of the first day, uh, we had uh, two guys with a, a, a pack truck. I'm drawing a blank on what you call it. A, a rig of horses lined up that were heading up to a bear camp that came right through where we were camped at, and we we just literally thought we weren't going to see a soul the whole week. Mm-hmm. Um, the the other thing I'll say, and then I'll get I'll let you go, Nick. Um, you were talking about you know sometimes just writing it down. Uh, I've experienced the same thing, and I know Nick has as well. And even in some cases, writing an article about something will force me to do the research I need to to be sure that what I'm writing is is at least somewhat accurate. Um, so I definitely, you know, uh, agree with you on that. A lot of times, just just putting it down on paper or or in in digital format where you can read it yourself definitely helps your confidence level. I think I agree a hundred percent. I I've learned so much from since starting the website that I hadn't known about fly fishing before I started it just because you know I decided I want to write about something that I know a little bit about and then I don't want to write you know a an article that is only part 
part of the story. So at that point, sure. I'll go learn the rest of it. You know, if I want to write about uh, a, like a type of fly rod, I'm going to go do the rest of the research that I don't know yet before I go write that and share it with everybody else. And so it's kind of a, a way to help others, but also to help myself. Sure. Sure. I, go ahead, Nick. I had I'm the sorry. same thing with um, when I started bow hunting, too. It, it was, and, and I'm, I'm actually re-experiencing all of that with fly fishing right now, where um, I've always kind of been, as Steve would say, a, a fly by the seat of my pants kind of guy. And um, I started out hunting that way. I, I really didn't have any intention. And I go out in the woods with, like, very little knowledge. You know, my dad taught me what he could, crammed it in, because I really had no interest when I was younger. And I just go sit in the woods and, and experience, you know, the the sunrises and sunsets and being out after dark and things happening and then I'd come back in after something happened and I think about why did that happen and as I as I got better at deer hunting you know when I'd have a deer encounter I'd analyze kind of what I did wrong you know the competitive streak in me would be like okay what did you do what did you do wrong why was that deer there then you know why why didn't it do this why did it do that and uh fly fishing it's just like that now too it's it's you know, why were the fish biting at this time? Why why weren't they biting at this time? What was I doing wrong? Like, you know, why can't I do this cast or why can't I do that? Or, or you know, and then I'll, there's such a wealth of information out there. That I'll go, I just go down rabbit holes figuring out, oh, maybe it's because I'm not using this line or, or I was, I was uh, using, you know, tippet that was too light or, or all this stuff. And it's really, uh, it, it, it kind of just like just writing kind of just drives you to learn more and more and more and just become more educated, which is really, really cool. And and, and like you, I started a blog with bow hunting where it, and, and kept it, you know, to this day. And that really is what kind of drove me to get better at it, because, you know, if I'm going to put something out there, I want to know I want to know the reasons. And, uh, right. it's, it's really kind of a cool, and I'm not a scientific person like you. So it's like, to me, I'm like, Oh, I just experienced this great thing. And everybody who's reading my work, <laughs> Oh, I know why you experienced that. You idiot. Like, this is why this happened. <laughs> you know, there's nothing romantic about it. That's just science. <laughs> right. And I think sharing like the, sharing your, your bad times is, is just as important. You know, uh, I'm, I try to share information with people, but I'm by no means an expert. And so I'm, I'll be the first to admit that I went out and caught nothing and have no idea why I caught nothing. Because um, I think that's part of it. And I don't think that ever stops. I don't think that ever goes away, no matter how good at, at it you get. Mm-hmm. So do you keep a, um, on, on the topic of writing while we're still on it, so do you keep it like a fly fishing journal? Uh, I keep, I, I have a fly fishing section. So uh, last year, my, my boyfriend got me into bullet journaling. Have you guys heard of that? I, I've seen it done live while I was turkey hunting by a dude shooting in the field <laughs> next to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I'm familiar with it that way. He was definitely doing that. And I also know about car journaling because our co-host Tom does that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so, so I'll ask, what is bullet journaling? So I've I've tried over the years to keep journals at different times, and I always find myself like really into it for a, about a week, and then uh, peter off and stop. But the bullet journal is just basically you you can keep tabs on your day, but it's in bullet points instead of you trying to write you know long paragraphs about what you did, okay. which is probably not much on any given day. Um, 
And so it, it keeps me active in it. But you can also, I mean, I use it for all, all sorts of things, not just a daily log. So I have a section in the back of it that I keep for fly fishing. It's not a fly fishing specific journal, but when I go out, I'll try to kind of mark what the weather was doing that day, um, just what I noticed in the fish, like where they were hanging out and stuff like that. Uh, the purpose mostly just being so the following year, uh, around that time, I can go back to it and say, okay, I, I should probably start by rigging up, you know, such and such way since I found out by the end of last time that, you know, they were hitting caddises or something like that. So I don't, I don't go into great detail, but I try to keep a record just to kind of help myself down the road. That is not what I thought you were going to say. I thought you legit meant bullet journaling. <laughs> like projectile seriously? bullet journaling <laughs> but um seriously like that <laughs> uh, yeah, that's why i'm up. the color uh, that's why i'm the color commentary of this podcast <laughs> but the uh it, no i actually it's funny because like my deer hunting journal uh when i first started deer deer hunting like journaling for deer hunting i would sit there and i would write like i would try to bullet journal and i would end up writing stories and, and that's kind of <laughs> okay. just where I went. Like my, my one hunt journal and Steve kept on saying, you know, just take like, just write down wind direction and stuff. And I'm talking about <laughs> everything else, but the wind direction and what happened and all this. My journals are like stories. There's not anything worth anything in any of them for me to glean from on my next hunt. But funny <laughs> the, with fly- the beauty of his antlers as he comes in. Exactly. And- <laughs> so like, I think of when I'm in the woods and stuff happens, I think of, oh, that's a great line. You know, and I write that down uh, and I'm getting better at it. Last year, I took a lot better notes, but fly fishing, it's funny. I take detailed notes and none of it is, and it's probably just because I'm beginning, but none of it's like romantic at all. Like none of it's like creative or anything. I just have this fly journal that I, I record like, you know, water temperature. I record what's going on. I record, um, you know, what I caught, what fly I caught it on, what fly I should have tried, you know, all this stuff. Like I... And then maybe if I if I did a little research like we were talking about, I'll jot down notes about like, oh, I should try this, you know, from the Orvis podcast, uh-huh. blah, 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 blah. So, like, I don't know why that is, but I think it's just because I'm just so hungry to learn right now that, that that's what I'm doing. And then the other stuff, when I actually sit in front and want to write a story, that comes to me then. But, yeah, it's, the two things are completely different for me between hunting and fishing. Like, fishing for me is, like, all, like what's going on and i and one of the first things i learned is like hey you should write this down because you know this time next year you might want to go back and check your journal and say oh uh well they you know black caddises were were hatching this time of year what's it like what's it like this year you know maybe that's a good fly Mm -hmm. to try yeah and that's kind of what i do with it just because you know you can look up you can look up things like, okay, I'm going fishing in the summer at, you know, whatever altitude or in whatever state, what should I use? And you'll get a, a list of um, kind of tips. And those are obviously helpful. You know, even blanket statements can be really beneficial. But at the same time, every every body of water is different. And it's like even every day is different. So I'll go somewhere I fished 100 times and what I, you know, what I threw last time isn't even getting a look. So, uh for me, it's just trying to keep a record of day by day. That way, you know, the following year, if I'm going out and trying the standard, like, oh, this is what I think I would fish, you know, during this time of year, and it's not working, I can go back and say, actually, you know, uh, 
last year around this time they weren't taking what they were supposed to anyway but I had some luck on such and such so that's kind of why I keep it but I kind of think I have the same problem you do where uh, I guess for your hunting journal but I'll be out in the field and I'll think of some you know super poetic line to describe how things are going and I've I basically like written a book in my head and then I get home to put it down on paper and it just comes out like the most childish scribble where it's just it's <laughs> it's not worth reading afterward um I don't know what it is about like being out there at the time but I think it just it causes you to think in a in a different way than when you're sitting and remembering it at a desk later no that's absolutely a, it's it's true it's I mean you think it's you've just got a masterpiece in your head when you're in yeah. the moment when you get home you're like this is the most rudimentary terrorist <laughs> terrible stuff I've ever heard in my life like yeah it's it's funny you kind of it it's one of it's the same reason like you know probably a month ago I tried to sit down and write a turkey story I didn't get to write from last year and I couldn't do it like there was <laughs> I just couldn't do it like I remembered everything that happened like I know how to write but you know, I was talking to um, John Bushin, another friend of the show, and I, my turkey hunting buddy, and I said, you know, I can't write this. And he said, it's because you're not a turkey hunting, man. Like, you got a turkey hunt. You're like, we're almost in season. You should sit down immediately after you're done and try to write that story, and I guarantee it'll work. And it does. Like, you have to be in the moment. If you're just sitting down trying to force it, it doesn't happen. But, yeah. Yeah, I've even thought about taking the like a notepad out with me and just, you know, if I have some sort of idea to sit down and just like write it down at the time. Uh, but I, f- I find that when I'm only out fishing for like an hour or two after work, I'm not going to give up, you know, 15, 20 minutes just sitting there waxing poetic about <laughs> all the great things that are happening while I sit on the shore. Well, <laughs> so, you're sitting on a rock I, in the middle of the yeah. <laughs> Everybody's hooking up at you. <laughs> I think it'd work great for whitetail hunting. You got eight hours to sit there and do nothing. So oh no, it doesn't because the moment you sit down and write something, you're going to see an eight point. That's oh, what's going to end up. Yeah, happening. of course. <laughs> and, and and I'll tell you right now, Katie, don't pull that thread on the whitetail hunting, or there will be no more talk about fly fishing. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I was going to ask um, one: How did how did you get started with the fly fishing and then what was the what was the draw to um really focusing more on fly fishing in the backcountry because backcountry something it means for for hunters and this is just my opinion based on you know what i've read and seen in in the community backcountry for hunters is really a a, a passion that you don't hear so much when it comes to fly fishing. And I'm as guilty of that as, as anybody because, you know, when we, when we did our backpack, our backcountry hunt this past fall, we definitely carried fly rods and we spent a good bit of time fishing, but it wasn't the highlight of the trip. Um, and it's almost like you see some of that, that, you know, whenever you hear the term backcountry, most people go straight to hunting as opposed to just backpacking or just fly fishing so i'd like to know more about you know what what took you down this path yeah so i i totally agree and i i listen to probably like 50 50 backcountry hunting podcasts and fly fishing podcasts and i agree i think i hear the backcountry thing a lot more with hunting and i think maybe the reason is like you can't you can't hunt in the creek that runs down main street um like you have to at least get a little bit away from home, whereas fly fishing is really accessible to basically anybody who has a pond or a creek nearby, which is you know most of the population. So there isn't that need to get way back in the backcountry. Uh, I, I think it's it's kind of hard to to describe sometimes, just because 
you don't you don't need to get back there and it's also it's not really that hardcore of a thing to go fly fishing uh, i actually heard um, i think it was the orvis podcast recently they were talking about like kind of kind of joking about when people describe themselves as like a hardcore fly fisherman and like what does that even mean it's not it's not really that hard uh, apart from the, the technical skill but you know you're not you don't need to push yourself really and i guess i guess i just wanted to combine those two things because i really liked kind of getting back in the middle of nowhere and at that point I hadn't I, I had just moved out west and I did some some hunting back east before I moved out here and again that was just to drive the car out walk a little bit out in the woods and sit down um, and getting into hunting out here took a little bit longer just because the, the barrier to entry is a lot higher obviously out here um, going on your first elk hunt uh, so I hadn't I hadn't really been able to try the backcountry hunting at that point and so I was like, well, I need to, I need to scratch my itch some other way. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to take the fly fishing and make it as hardcore as I can by getting back out there where I won't see anybody else and kind of put in the hard work uh, on the trail so I can get to fishing. That's probably pretty easy compared to what you're doing in town when you're um, targeting fish that get, get fished every day by, you know, hundreds of anglers. If you're, if you're hitting the South Platte or anything like that you're just kind of competing with so many people. And I think that makes the fishing harder. And I'd much, I'd much rather put in the hard work of just like the physical grueling aspect of, of hiking in and camping somewhere uh, and then get really easy fishing. And I think I come out of it feeling really accomplished, but also not having to be shoulder to shoulder with people. Cause at that point I don't even really want to go out if I'm going to be next to people the whole time. So a couple things you said there that that's, uh, I don't, I don't know how to frame this. Um, so I've I've done the majority of my fly fishing on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that, and people tend to forget this sometimes. When anytime you hear the word backcountry, you automatically think west. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's definitely backcountry in the East as well. And I've fished everything from, you know, the 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 easily accessible streams to the uh, to the, the, the native uh, tributaries um, in the backcountry uh, or in the wilderness areas, I guess, around North Carolina and Georgia. Um, <clears throat> and I, here's the thing that, that often strikes me, and maybe, maybe I'm just, I haven't hit the right streams yet, but I have never found uh, the level of difficulty that so many talk about when it comes to catching fish. Um, I would say there's definitely those days when you it just doesn't matter what you throw in the water you're you know you can, you're going you can catch something mm-hmm. and I've had the days where it doesn't matter what you throw in the water you're not going to catch anything <laughs> but it, it but it just seems like you can always find a way to catch a fish or two and maybe again maybe I've just had to hit the right stream so you know you talking about the you know getting out into the back country and and fishing the streams where the the, the fish are a little bit you know wilder or, or less less touched by man do you find it harder or easier from a fishing perspective taking the the scenery aspect and the the ambiance of being you know away from roads and those kind of things i mean what's the draw there is it more the 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 uh solitude or is it something to do with the actual fishing that draws you to the, the back country i would say it's the solitude first and the fishing is a nice side effect of that um i, I agree with you i don't think that uh m- most places you go 
you're, you're going to be able to catch something if you're familiar with the water and are half decent at casting and are at least there on a day where the fish are eating a little bit. Like it's not, you're not going to go home empty handed every time because, you know, fish see anglers, but there's definitely something to be said about once you, once you fish for uh, fish that don't uh, see anglers very often, there is a definite difference in how easy they are to catch. But I would say that again, that's, that's more of a, a nice um, side effect to kind of getting out there just to be out there and be away from people. I would, I'd much rather fish somewhere that I'm not seeing anybody and also not catch any fish than go somewhere where I'm neck and neck with other people and also catch a lot of fish. I'd say I value the kind of the pristine beauty and the solitude of it far higher than the actual fishing. It's, it's not hard to go catch a fish somewhere, but it is hard to find um, an area that it, you don't see evidence of human presence, you know, beer cans in the, in the creek and uh, a guy around every bend and that kind of gotta, thing. So you, I'd say that's what I'm looking for in the most part. You got to get out of my head because it's, as you were going down, that's exactly what I was sitting here thinking was, you know, in all the streams that Tom and I fished, and it wasn't that many, but we fished in several different streams in several different locations. Um, and yeah, the, the, the lack of, the lack of evidence of human presence is just absolutely wonderful that you don't, you don't see that kind of stuff like you do, uh, in the East, typically mm. in the East. And I want to um, clarify, I don't, I don't think that there's a, a lack of backcountry in the East. I, I happen to get into it out here because when I when I grew up I wasn't fly fishing I grew up like most people spin fishing and my family didn't really fish at all it was just kind of something I always wanted to do so I would go out and fish but I was always uh you know close to home we had a we had a cottage on a river up in Pennsylvania and I was allowed to just kind of take the kayak out and and roam as I pleased to come back at the end of the day so I was never far from civilization but uh I, I'm not under the impression that there's there's no way to get away from people back east. It's just something that I don't have a ton of experience with because by the time I kind of got more into that, I was already out here. And sure. once you're out here experiencing um, all the, the vast tracts of land, uh, it's hard to want to go back to having a little more limited access to some of those places. Oh, believe me, if I could convince my wife to move out there tomorrow, I would, uh, but I can't. So I've, <laughs> I've had to, I've had to give that dream up. And, and I was not, uh, I was not insinuating you specifically with that statement. It's just every, you know, the, the average person, when you say backcountry, they immediately think out West and don't think about the fact that there's a, there's thousands and thousands of, of backcountry wilderness area in the East as well that, a lot of people just, I don't know if they just ignore it or they, they don't know about it or maybe they just don't equate it to backcountry because of the, uh, there's been a, I mean, you know, in the last, heck, even in the last five years, the term backcountry has really been uh, promoted a lot. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, it's typically uh, associated with out west. Not necessarily yeah, I, a bad thing. And I think backcountry is, is what you make of it too. Um, I think I mentioned somewhere on the website, like, whether whether your backcountry is like 10 miles back in which you know some people want to go that far just to experience it or you know if you if you hike a mile out from your backyard just to get away from people like I don't I don't want to make it sound like backcountry is only for people who you know put five miles in uh off trail to to get away from everybody it's 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 whatever people are looking for and I think if you're if you're back on a on a trail or off the trail I guess um, and where you want to be in the woods away from people, that's, I mean, 
any of that can be considered backcountry, I guess, to me. Sure. And I, you know, I, for me, if I gave it my definition, it would, it would sound a lot like what you were talking about with regards to the, you know, pristine, that kind of thing. It, it, you know, if I get to the point where I'm not hearing cars and motorcycles and maybe not even hearing planes very often, that kind of thing, once I can get to that point, that's where I'm happiest. And that's, to me, that's, that's kind of backcountry. Um, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Like just to, to feel like you are only in, um, you're, you're only surrounded by nature and, and not having to constantly witness human presence kind of against your will. Yeah. That's yeah. That's kind yeah. of where I'm missing out. I, I just haven't really ever, other than, I mean, like the biggest pieces of land have been when I've hunted with you, Steve. So well, I was getting ready to say, yeah, I would, I would definitely equate, um, our hunt on Cumberland. Oh, that's backcountry for sure. <laughs> I guess you can uh, count it. Uh, yeah, that's a <laughs> yeah, that's a four by seventeen, four mile by seventeen mile barrier island. They drop you off by ferry, and you know that's that's kind of where you stay. Um, mm-hmm. And again, that that no, you, you know, every time you put your foot down, you wonder, am I stepping somewhere where no one has ever stepped before? Uh, which I just think is is fantastic. Yeah, and I even if you even if you know logically that you're probably not the first person there, if you can trick yourself into thinking that you're the first person there, I think that that counts. Yeah, that kind of goes back to way back to like our episode with uh, with Denny Neely, Steve, where you know he sure. he entered with the mindset of, I mean, he went all the way back to a different era, but you know he he just sought solitude and every time he went out in the woods he's that's where he is he's he's looking at it like i've never seen this land before you know and trying to it's almost like psyching yourself up for it which i i think is pretty cool um i just wish i had more of that here i um yankee springs is pretty big you know some of the property is pretty big for michigan but you know if i try to find the back country here in michigan i basically end up by some dude's dog kennel on the other side of the property because it's just <laughs> landlocked you know um but, you know, it's funny, though, when I'm in the, I'm, I'm new to the Rogue River here, which people have been fishing forever, and there's plenty of um, houses lining the river, you know, um, mm-hmm. there's really not, there's not a whole lot of solitude on it. Um, and even then, that feels really, I'm in a different mindset when I step into that river. It just, there's there's parts of it where you can't see houses and stuff like that, where it's it's like little bins and stuff, and then you just hear the riffles kind of drown everything out, and you, it kind of feels like you're somewhere else. And um, I didn't even know what big water was until I, like, fished the Muskegon River last year with a friend, and that's just a, a, a much bigger river and a lot of bigger water, and I hadn't seen that much water. I've I'd never been in that. I've seen that much water. I'd never been in that much water waiting where I was like, there's boats that could go either side of me. You know, I'm fishing in the middle of the river. There's, there's stuff going on. This is super wide. You know, it takes a while to walk across, you know, um, mm-hmm. that was, uh, that was real different for me, but you know, I, I, that's almost back country to me. Like if you're on something that big, like I, I don't think there's anything, I don't feel like there's anything wilder than being in the middle of a river. And no, and I think anyone who's like trying to assign like a specific definition to back country is just kind of kidding themselves. Cause I mean, there's such a, a variety of landscapes in the U S and like you said, sometimes it's hard to get away when it's, when everything's so landlocked by like private land that, uh, it, 
to to say that you can only experience backcountry when you're in the middle of some like giant western national forest is just kind of it's kind of foolish and it's it's eliminating like half the country mm-hmm. at that point Sure. I mean, my mind immediately goes whenever anybody says backcountry to it, like like Steve was saying, it goes, I don't know why, I, I don't know why, but I think it, it definitely goes west. I always picture like my idea of backcountry hunting or backcountry um, fishing is like kind of like one of your blog posts that you posted. It's like somewhere, somewhere in the mountains on this like remote stream or this little pool or, or something like that that I had to hike to and, and that kind of just seems like where it is for me and uh mm. you know and that's actually the first time you know i've never really i've never really i i didn't have the calling steve had to go hunt antelope out west like i've never really had that calling but when i started fishing now i'm like i'm gonna go out west and fish i know this is something i'm going to do <laughs> like it it just is um because I, I, you know, a lot of the stuff on YouTube and a lot of the videos and the blogs is just all, all these wonderful rivers out west, and there's stuff I want to check out. So, you know. And I feel like we're kind of on uh, like separate ends of the spectrum here because I, growing up in Pennsylvania, that's where I like cut my teeth fishing for smallmouths and walleyes and stuff like that on a spin rod. And since I've come out here, and I feel like my fishing life has kind of taken a 180 where now I'm mostly dealing with trout on a fly rod and as much as I still want to use the fly rod at this point uh, I'm like itching to come back and kind of re-explore um, everywhere that I fished as a kid mm-hmm. and kind of kind of re-experience that as an adult so I think like well everyone is um, back east kind of wanting to come out west that just know that there's there's definitely some of us out here who are kind of pining to come back east and experience that because I haven't gotten to experience it since I was a kid. Well, it's funny. I, I miss it a lot. It's funny you mentioned that because I got a um, I, I got a friend that recently moved here from Pennsylvania. He'd been there all his life, and he he's an avid fly fisherman. He's a photographer, and because he was a photographer, we we just talked about this last weekend. He he could. I said, well, how many? He he's barely been fishing since he's been to Michigan. And I said, well, how much did you fish, you know, on the East Coast there? And he said, well, he's like every day almost, you know, during the times of year. He said, because I I had clients that I could schedule around with photography. I had my seasons and I could fish almost every day. And I've hardly fished here at all. And um, he was talking about how wonderful it is to fish, fly fish Pennsylvania. So I'm wondering, what, so why didn't you get into fly fishing there? Like with all that, there must have been a lot of fly fishermen around. Honestly, I don't remember. I don't think I met a single fly fisherman growing up in Pennsylvania. I think it's it become, maybe it's just more of a recent trend. I, I know it has kind of gained some popularity in the past couple of years. But growing up, I, I distinctly remember seeing one fly fisherman um, between when I started fishing and when I moved out of Pennsylvania. And I didn't understand what, what he was doing at the time because you know, coming from uh, like a gear fishing background, I was like, well, the fish are never going to bite when the line is that thick, you know? Um, so <laughs> I think uh, what, how I took up fly fishing was kind of by chance. Um, my sister lives out here and she works uh, as a teacher and she worked with another teacher who, you know, there's a lot of teachers who are guides over the summer just, you know, to make some extra cash. And she worked with a guy who had mentioned to her that they were looking for some help around the fly shop over the summer and had asked her if she knew anyone who enjoyed fishing. So she was like, I guess my sister is someone you could reach out to. So uh, I got a call from him basically saying, if you want to come out 
and work out here. We, like, we'd be happy to have you. And I, was, I told him I don't fly fish. And he's like, well, if you want to come out and kind of work the shop for the summer, we'll teach you. And then you can kind of keep coming back out. So I just kind of on a whim came out uh, my first semester after college to work in Estes Park and mostly did kind of assisting on trips and working the shop and um, just kind of helping out when they needed me. And then from there on, I don't I don't think I've picked up a spin rod maybe more than three or four times since that summer. <laughs> and Estes Park is gorgeous. Uh, it is. I, I've been, um, I had uh, an ex-girlfriend that talked about Estes Park. That's where she always wanted to live. And uh, I finally got a chance with Jess and I went to went out to Colorado to uh, to visit a, to visit a friend, and uh, we got we got to you know climb around out there and up into the the lock area and stuff like that. And man, it was just something. So I can't even imagine fishing it, hiking it was that much fun. Yeah, and I you know I think that's where I kind of because growing up, like I said, I didn't really do much backcountry anything, um, not because of a lack of access to it, just because you know when you're a kid and. You've only got you only got so many ways to get around and so many places to go, but kind of going from that straight into Rocky Mountain National Park, it was just kind of a it, it blows your mind the first time you see it. I mean, it still blows your mind when you've been there before, but when when you're going from having seen nothing but like the the deep dark East Coast woods, um, which are beautiful in their own way, of course, but uh, coming out and seeing like you said the lock and all of that area for the first time, it's just it kind of changes your mindset and I think that's that's where I suddenly thought like I need to be making more time to get to get to places like this however that is and I guess combining that with fly fishing was just the the most logical route for me mm-hmm. one of the things I noticed out there is like we ended up seeing at one point um like we saw like dull sheep up there um and they were on uh we, we saw one walking around the point of this mountain and it was like I just never understood, like Steve said, the vastness of being out west and seeing all that open property, and you, like your distances get messed up. So you're like, oh yeah, yeah. that's right there. And then like, I'm like, no, that's not right there. That's a really three long hours way. later, you're still walking. <laughs> exactly. <to> get- <laughs> I remember driving out there, and um, you could see from like town to town once you got like clear of Denver. Like storms yeah. rolling in and it, like that's something I never experienced growing up in Michigan. Just like, you know, you don't see anything. You see trees and you see hills. Like that's all you see in Michigan or water. There's no flatness like that where you just see for miles. Uh, yeah, the sky out here is is like noticeably larger than back east. I remember that was a little overwhelming at first as well. And I don't know if you guys have noticed this out west, but I don't I don't know if you guys have ever like spent much time like living out here. But one thing I've noticed on the East Coast is like, in a growing up in a small town, it would be it'd be kind of a a trip to to drive like a half hour to forty five minutes to another town. And now I regularly drive half an hour to forty five minutes, like on a daily basis, to get places. And I think I don't know what it is, but there's something about uh, like distances out west that they just they grow, or I guess they shrink. Um, mm-hmm. large distances you're just like you're willing to go there and and back home I feel like hiking five miles in would be kind of a it, it probably wouldn't happen and now I'll, I'll regularly hike five miles to get somewhere and it's that's not that long a distance out here it's just everything has to be made longer or you're never going to get anywhere no I think I think it's uh I think it's because you a part of its visibility is that you could see it like yeah. in, in Michigan even if you're driving for an hour like in it, you just have these winding, you know, wooded tunnel roads where 
it's just monotonous and you just can't see where you're going. You can't see your destination at all. Um, mm-hmm. And it's even like that, you know, when I was, when I go visit Steve, it's like that too. You got a lot of winding hills and, and a lot of wooded areas and, and not a, like for, there's like not a lot of horizons in Michigan. So it's like when you're driving, it's, it just feels like it's taking forever to get where you're going. But when, when we were driving around out West, whenever I've been out there, it's like when you can see that far away, it's like, yeah, we're almost there. And you don't even think about it. You just keep going. Yeah, like <laughs> like you said with the sheep too. It's like when you can when you're like standing on the the top of a, a ridge and you're looking down across a valley to another ridge and you're like, oh, I'll just walk over there, and it's like miles away. Or you're like, yeah, if I shot this arrow up in the air, you know, it's gonna get there. And it, absolutely not. That's like 500 yards further than you thought it was. <laughs> like the ra- my range my ranging is already bad here. I don't know what it would be out west. <laughs> But uh, so, what do you guys fish for mostly back in? You're in Georgia, Steve, right? Correct, and and mostly, uh, I would say 99 percent of the fishing I do is for trout. So, okay, uh, we've actually got um, one of the one of the best trout fisheries on the East Coast, 30 minutes from my house, is the tailwater of uh, Lake Lanier. It's the Chattahoochee River, um, and then there's a lot of mountain streams too. I I, I I probably prefer fishing the mountain streams, but because it's so close and accessible, I do spend a lot of time uh, on the Chattahoochee. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'd say, like I said, that's probably 98, 99% of the fishing I do is, is trout. Yeah, but cool. I'll go ahead. Oh, oh, that was, I was just, I was just, oh, I'm sorry. Steve. I thought you were going to get it. I thought my <laughs> mic was screwed up for a second. Um, uh, yeah, for me, it's, it's similar to Steve. It's, uh, it's brown trout. Um, I'd like to get into, some char, some brookies, um, in some smaller streams and stuff like that. And I've caught it a, a rainbow or two. Um, but it's trout. It's mainly trout. And I, I did get to, I, I'll tell you this though. I did get to, um, uh, finally throw some, uh, some poppers at rock bass last year. And, uh, I, man, I had a blast doing that. That took me right back to when I was a kid and, and, you know, spin casting bluegill and, and stuff like that, that, you know, just with bobbers, um, mm-hmm. we did that. That was how my dad kept us entertained when we fished. We, we would go pan fishing because that was the, we'd have a fish every other minute, you know? Um, but yeah. catching them on a fly rod was just absolutely hysterical. I mean, it was just totally different, um, you know, way to do it. And, uh, I love that. And, um, been talking to Scott too, and I want to get into, uh, I got to get fishing with him one of these days, but he, I'm bound and determined to try carp fishing on the fly because he's all about that. And, um, I have more time to fish in the summer, you know, when it gets hotter and, and it's not so good to go fishing for trout. I really want to get into more bass and, and carp. So I'd probably, I'm probably going to be just all species here pretty soon where I'm just, you know, going after different things throughout the year, but I'll never, I'll, I'll always be a trout bum. I'm never the catching Browns. I don't care how big they are. is always going to be my thing. I think. But. Yeah. I've kind of been feeling the same way recently. Like I said, kind of kind of itching to go back east in the same way I'm, I'm kind of missing all the species i caught growing up and as much as i love trout my, my goal for this summer is to spend a little bit more time like actually down down closer to home fishing some of the warm water lakes for bass and pan fish and stuff because you just really can't beat like a bass hitting a, a popper or just catching like 50 bluegill in a day like there's just something so fun about that and everyone can come and have success. It's not, there's not the stress of trying to present a dry fly just right. It's just like good old fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, my goal is to do a little bit more of that this year. Cause I just really miss it. 
You know, and I always wondered, um, well, and then I, I'd like to do more like steelhead fishing too and, and salmon fishing and stuff. I, I mean, I, I, I didn't get really a chance to do that this year and really wanted to, but you know, I wonder what, what it is about trout fishing that like, why is trout, why, why is fishing for trout on a fly rod the romantic way to do it? Why, why is that the one that's the, the most majestic fishing, like species of fish there is for this kind of fishing? Like when we grew up, we, we, we caught everything. Like when we were spin casting, like we, mm-hmm. we did everything, you know, from pike to catfish to, to suckers to whatever, you know, we, we just caught it. It, it really didn't think much of it. But the moment I got into fly fishing, it was like the majesty, the majestic brown trout, you know, and there's so many books on fishing for trout. And it's like, what, why? What, what, what? And I think, I think you just hit on it though. And I, I would say it, it probably goes back, I don't know, 30, 40, maybe even 50 years. The, the days of the split, uh, bamboo fly rods and those kind of things mm-hmm. and the, the romance that was built around it through, you know, magazine articles at the time and those kind of things. I mean, I honestly think that's a big contributor to it because, you know, like Kay was saying, uh, you get a big bluegill on a fly rod, oh, it's, it, it's going to give you much more of a fight than, than a, than a decent sized trout. Um, even in the, even in the current and yeah, maybe not as finicky. Um, and maybe that's part of it. They're, they tend to be a little more finicky, but I honestly believe the biggest part of it is just, you know, romance through publications and literature is probably, in my opinion, I think that's probably the biggest. What do you think, Katie? Yeah, I, I guess part of it's got to be like the fact that you know, half the time I'm fishing for bass or panfish, I'm in some like muddy, stinky lake. <laughs> um, whereas most of the time I'm fishing for trout, I'm in some crystal clear uh, like mountain stream. So I think that the, like the habitat kind of lends itself to literature. Um, I, that's really the only thing I can think of. Cause it's not like a trout is somehow more romantic or beautiful than a, like a brightly colored panfish. I mean, all fish have some sort of bright coloration that you can, you can really get into, but I feel like the, not even just the romantization of, uh, trout on a fly rod, but just, I think the utility makes a little bit of sense in that, you know, a fly rod is, is mostly like you can cast streamers and everything, but the, the most useful part of it is being able to cast a tiny fly that's too light to cast with a spin rod. And I think most of the time when you're fishing for trout, uh, it's, it's beneficial to at least have some of those smaller flies in your back pocket. Even if you enjoy streamer fishing, it's not always going to work. Whereas when you're fishing for something like a bass, it's, you know, kind of standard throw out something big and medium, pull it back toward you. Uh, so I think just the utility of um, trying to get a small fly out to a trout is, has got to be what led to fly rods kind of taking off in that realm more. But as far as the kind of romanticizing of it, I, I think it just has to be mostly the habitat and people, you know, someone starts it and then everyone else kind of follows suit in terms of the literature and everything. It's, that's, and that's a good point. Yep, somebody good somebody point. said this is the way you do it. It became trendy and it never stopped being trendy. <laughs> kind of. Right. Like I just heard someone ask, like, why is everyone wearing chest waders in like two feet of water? Like it's <laughs> like a fly fishing uniform that you've got to be wearing chest waders when you're fly fishing or you're not doing it right. <laughs> Even if it's not really that useful at the time. Now you need a snap back hat and a flat brim. it's funny though because that's seriously like it's shifted like you can always tell like 
what kind of fishermen in the area by are in the area by going into a fly shop. Like if you go in a Glen shop here in Rockford, Glen Blackwood, he was on one of our episodes. Like, you know, it's, it's more of like the traditional style fly fishermen go in there. And then if you go to nomad outfitter, which is across town, it's like a bunch of kids with flat brim hats and snapbacks. Like it's like, like <laughs> they're all everybody. It's the exact opposite. You see a lot of that with traditional yeah. bow hunting too. Like the new, the new school is kind of different than the old school, a little more tactical stuff like that, you know, more backcountry type people um, where, you know, the, the older guard are, you know, more like, more like Steve with flannels and, and, Brim now wait a minute! And, Why did you gotta go pulling me into this? This is I, all I was your, I was making your... an illustration. I wish I was I wish I was cool enough to fit in either category. I don't. I'm in the middle. I have no identity. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's funny. So you mentioned you mentioned pulling the tiny flies out of your pocket and stuff. What do you What do you prefer to fish with, Katie? Like, what do you What kind of style? Like, do you like to nymph? Do you like to dry uh, uh, streamers? Uh, what, what's your? I'm gonna I'm bet it's whatever will catch the fish is what you. But... But I'll, yeah, let, I'll let Katie answer. <laughs> yeah, that's that's about what I'm what I'm thinking as well. But I'd say if I, if I could, if I knew I could catch a fish on any style fly, it would be somewhere between dries and streamers. I'm kind of stuck between liking to see them come up and take it, and also like just really liking the aggressive takes you get on streamers. Nymphs, I'm like kind of indifferent toward. I'll I'll use them if they're working, which they usually are. But I don't really get the same satisfaction out of using them i'd say i usually fish dries more than streamers probably just because i'm better at it i'm i'm still uh not that i'm new to streamer fishing but i just don't do it a lot and i should probably force myself to just so i get better at it but i i find that if i see fish rising i'm just gonna throw on a dry and stick with that all day you know it's funny and i think it's just because i'm not that good at it yet with dries i've caught a few fish on a dry um and i love it you know when they're when you're out there and it's happening there's nothing like it um, but I really enjoy nymphing. I, I don't know. Do yes. And I don't know why I, when I first started, I'm like, you know, just the shop I frequented and stuff were like, you know, the, the dries, you got to fish the dries. Like that's what the, that's the gentleman's, the fly you, you fish the dries, you know? And, uh, mm-hmm. I kind of got that in my head. Plus, you know, from like reading Hemingway and Macquarie and like all that, you know, it was all about the dry flies. And, uh, that's what I had in my, this romantic idea in my head. Um, for that, but when I started nymph fishing and I started, um, I started watching YouTube videos on nymph fishing and stuff like that. Like I don't, I'm not real good with indicators yet or anything. And honestly, I tried dry droppers last year, you know, a dropper with a, with a nymph on the other, and the, you know, sub in the other column there. And I'm terrible at that. Cause I just ended up with snags all the time. I'm just not good enough with it yet. My casting's just not there. Um, but for some reason, I love that tight lining nymphing. I, 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 don't, I don't know why. I love to feel the strikes and, and you know, to play the bottom and, and work riffles with them. And I like emerger fishing, too, like a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. I, I, I never thought, you know, I, it's funny. I put an indicator on there. One of my buddies said, well, you get to throw a bobber on there next. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, and I was like, hey, now, wait a second. <laughs> and what if I do, you know? But there's something about it, like the indicator just kind of complicated everything for me. I just really like to just throw a nymph on and and go at it. There's just something about it. I don't know what it is. It's like there's like a mystery to it where I, it's totally different for me when I throw a dry out and I see a fish hit it. There's nothing like it. Like it's like, so, whoa, you know. 
would you say that uh, nymphing is easier or more difficult? Because I actually found, I feel like some people would say nymphing is a little easier because you don't have to necessarily get the exact drag-free drift and keep your fly afloat. But like when I first started out, I found nymphing to be uh, significantly harder than dry fly fishing. And I think it's because of what you said, like you can't see it. So you have no idea what's going on under there. Well, if I really like kind of seeing that dry. Yeah, I think, and that's part of, you know, I, I couldn't, I don't even know if I can answer that, to be honest, because like I've read so much on nymphing and some of these people like there's been book books written recently um on nymphing and that and i can't think of the author's name but it's like a it's science like it's like the way just the way they got everything adjusted and you know what to use for you know for your tippet and what to use for everything else and and you know sink lines versus floating lines and all this other stuff and some people some people use fluorocarbon and and you know and build their leaders and all this other stuff and and some people do it on the swing and some people do this other i mean there's just so many different ways to do it and the euro nymphine thing is kind of like the hot thing right now like everybody's kind of on doing that and i and i don't really I couldn't tell you, but I, I, what I, what attracts me to it is, and it's difficult because the way I do it without an indicator is everything feels like a strike. I mean, if mm-hmm. you're, you're at the right depth and you've, and you got, you know, something with a tungsten head on it or whatever, and it sinks really good and everything like that, like you're, you're feeling that bottom and everything feels like a strike. And half the time, you know, if, if you're at the end of your uh, at the end of your drift when you're nymphing and you just lift your pole out of the water to set, you could have a fish there. Like ev- everything feels like you could have a fish. Like you always treat you always treat it like you've got a fish on at the end of a drift. And at least that's what I've, I've heard people say. And I honestly, most of the fish I've caught nymphing have been that way. It's been on the end of a drift. Like you'll feel it hit the bottom or something. You just raise the pole out of the air. It sets the hook. You've you've got a fish on. Like most of the time. Um, and it helps to have like a really long rod and, and I, I've got one rod in particular that's really good at it. Um, and, and I don't know what it is. Like, I just feel fish better that way. Um, but if my, I think, I just think presentation with the dry is so much harder to me. I I, I don't know what it is, especially because I got to do a lot of roll casting here and I can't, there's not a lot of places I can open up. So mm-hmm. I can never, I'm having a, I have a hard time getting a really good presentation with a dry when I'm roll casting and stuff right now. I'm just not there yet. You know, I think the, the difference between learning to fish with a dry and a nymph is similar to something I've heard, uh, talked about in the ski industry where it's easier to start skiing, but it's harder to master it. And it's harder to start snowboarding, but it's easier to master it. I kind of feel the same way. Like you can get out there, throw an indicator and a nymph on and, you know, probably get a fish to take. Whereas it's going to be a little harder for someone who's just starting out to throw their first dry fly, get a drag free drift and set the hook. But once you've got that down, that's really all there is to dry fly fishing. And meanwhile, there's still so much to dive into for nymphing. Like you've just scratched the surface when you throw an indicator and a nymph on. Like there's so many things you can change up. And like you said, the Euro nymphing, like there's just so many ways to take it. Whereas dry flies are just kind of, once you got it, you got it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's funny. I read something that, um, like with fly selection, like in Michigan for brown trout, like if you have a few flies in your fly box for nymphing, if you have like any kind of caddis larva, like if you've got a, my my favorite fly of all time is the hair's ear nymph. I absolutely 
love that fly just because it's it's not attractive it's it's <laughs> the free the just a free ugly fly with a little bit of gold on it in a hot spot or whatever the way you're going to do it and it just looks like everything and it works the other one's the pheasant tail like just a pheasant tail nymph you know and then basically like any kind of like midge any kind of like caddis looking kind of midge with you can put a tail on it whatever it's those three you can you can have your i tie those that's like the only flies i'm decent tying and i just fill my box full of them and i'm pretty confident that if i hit the water that day i have a good chance with either of those flies just in the spots i fish but and i know yeah it's like when you go to the fly shop and you see like all these fancy things and they're talk about how they're to catch fishermen not fish exactly i mean 99 percent of the time when i go out i'm throwing one of the things you just mentioned on yeah at least one of my flies will be either a pheasant tail or a hare's ear oh okay that's interesting and I, you know i read in one of your articles you said that um i think it was one of the backcountry ones you said that there's like only one fly you, you need to use when you go up into the mountains and that's the parachute atoms um, yeah, for dry flies, that's the first thing I'll throw, and it's usually the only thing I need to throw up there. Mm-hmm. And it's it's similar here. Like I, I mean, I throw a lot of um, deer hair caddises. Um, I can mm-hmm. can kind of tie those. I think they most of them end up looking like injured dead insects floating on the water. You know, which I don't know. Maybe they like that because it's less work or something. Maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, but <laughs> like basically, the two here are parachute atoms and caddis. It's just like the nymphs I talked about. If you got parachute atoms in different sizes and you've got caddis flies in different size, sizes, just basic cat like elk hair or deer hair caddis, you have a good chance. Um, and I've seen super fancy ones in the fly shop, you know, for two fifty or whatever, where you're like, man, that looks so awesome. And I don't know, I caught as good. I'm not, I'm not very good. I mean, I tied a really terrible deer hair caddis last year and caught my first brown on it and i've not caught anything with really good well-tied flies that same night i didn't catch any so i mean i know presentation has a lot to do with it but yeah you're you're right it's definitely catching fishermen like my buddy scott tied one one night after our podcast and he tied this like beautiful like cinnamon caddis with like hackle in it and stuff like that and i was and he said yeah nobody would buy this and i was like you're (laughs) kidding me I'm like, I couldn't even give mine away. <laughs> you know, if that's, if that's being the case. Like, if I handed somebody a box of my flies, they'd give them back and say, that's all right, I'm good, I've got enough. <laughs> you know, but... Um, and, and it's funny that, so the, the, the two of us, so you like to fish, uh, you like to fish pretty much the dries, and I like nymphing, and Steve, I'm pretty sure I know what you like to do. Yeah, I'm a streamer yep. guy, most of the time. So, uh, between the between the three of us, we could cover a, we could cover any situation. Every column of water. <laughs> well, it's funny. Just, just roll through in a group and just wipe the entire river clean. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, it's funny because every time I go out in the water and I come back, and Steve's like, "Well, how'd you do?" And I'm like, "Yeah, you know, I caught a couple small ones." And he's always, "You got to throw streamers, man. You got to throw streamers." <laughs> And I'm like, I don't want to throw streamers. That doesn't seem like what I want to do. But now I'm. Th- you just you haven't you you haven't done it right. No, I haven't. I'm, I mean, the first time you go, especially a big brown, when they hit a streamer, uh, and you're already on tight line. Yeah, you you you'd be hooked immediately. I'd almost guarantee. Well, and the strikes look absolutely killer, just vicious on streamer. Fishing. They can be. Um, they can they they can be subtle too, but. Uh, it, it really depends on the truck. Like usually a, a rainbow, um, in my experience, is not as aggressive, but, you know, you'll get a softer take. But like I said, a big brown, yeah, they're, 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 they're very aggressive when it comes to a streamer. 
Hmm. Somebody told me I need to try hmm. mousing at night too. Sometime. I've never done that. I, I've heard. I got a buddy that. who's been mousing the past couple of days, and he's been sending me pictures. And I'm pretty jealous. <laughs> See that that freaks me out a little bit. I'll be honest. Like fishing at night. Well, no, I'm, I'm fine fishing at night. We have some funny stories about that already. But I mean, the uh, just just fishing with like, I I had no idea that existed. Like actual, when I saw the first time I saw a mouse fly in a fly shop, I was like, "You're kidding me! This is a thing." And then John Mudry explained it to me, my fishing buddy, and he said, "Well, yeah, they you know they." They fall off the tree or whatever, and the big the big fish eat them and stuff. Like I can't imagine hooking into a monster at night, something big enough to eat a freaking mouse. You'd be surprised <laughs> how small of a fish can eat a mouse. Really? Yeah, you really would. I mean, it's it, it, I don't know so much as as trout, but um, you would be amazed what a bass can get down their throat. <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, but trout can. I mean, they can. Especially again, the browns. Um, if they can fit it in their mouth, they can they can eat it um, for the most part. I mean, if you think about like, I'm sure you guys have both had this happen where you've got on some sort of large dry fly. It's like it usually happens to me when I'm fishing, uh, like a dry dropper, and up up top, I don't actually put much thought into what's on top. I'm just like using it kind of like an indicator. Mm-hmm. So I'll just put something like big and leggy, and you'll inevitably catch some like five inch fish that is you know, gaping around this fly. Like it was really confident when it took it and then clearly got in over its head. Oh yeah, totally. I, I've seen some of those, uh, <laughs> I've seen some of those hoppers. I have some of those hoppers. I bought them just cause they look cool. Like I, I think I went, um, I went into the shop one day and I was like, what do I throw this time of year? And I think Glenn at the time was like junk bugs. And I'm like, what's junk bugs? And he's like, anything that would fall off a branch and into the water. And fish as close as you can to the shore. And uh, so I, I, he hooked, you know, he's like, you want this, 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 this. He started putting stuff in my, you know, little can there. And I was like, these are insane. Who would, what would ever bite these? Like humongous grasshopper things. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I actually had a couple, like you said, like a couple of really small fish try to hit him. And it was pretty comical. I was like, you wouldn't know what to do with that if you did catch it. Like, <laughs> like it would carry you down the river. But. Yeah, I find that's something that also actually works well. You mentioned the the parachute atoms, how I had mentioned before that that was something I use a lot in the backcountry. I noticed for um, backcountry lakes in particular, uh, things like beetles and ants, they just love them in like alpine lakes out here. Hmm. Obviously, I don't know back east how that would work. I, I would imagine that at least your creeks are f- fairly similar, but some of those lakes up around, you know, ten or 11,000 feet, those uh, beetles and ants will just, they'll, they will gorge themselves on those i've heard winged ants after a hatch are a big one here um that's because i asked them like why would they you know how are these little ants going to catch anything and like how why would they end up in the water and i said if you can get it if you you go out one day and there's a hatch like you'd be surprised and you'll know it right away because they'll be hitting all over you know on the surface Mm -hmm. just you know and you don't even know what they're eating um but yeah it's uh it, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty crazy, and I really want to tie some of that stuff because it looks really fun to tie like the foam-bodied hoppers and things like that. Um, that I could see, I could see myself doing that. Do you, do you tie, Katie? 
Uh, very infrequently. I used to do a little more, and I've just been pretty bad about keeping up with it. Uh, I never really tied to anything like very complicated. I was kind of like you, where I was pumping out a lot of pheasant tails and midges and things like that, pats, rubber legs, woolly buggers. Um, and I haven't tied in a bit, just because we moved last summer, mm-hmm. and the fly tying station has not gotten up and running yet. <laughs> just has been kind of a low priority. But it's something I want to get into. It just seems like one of those other things, just like all the different styles, like as much as I'd love to take up every different style of fly fishing, there's just so much to learn. And that's kind of where I'm at with fly tying, where I I want to do it. But when I do it, I want to do it right. And so until I have kind of a lot of time to set aside to learn something new, I'm kind of just putting it on the back burner. And I'll probably just continue to tie my midges and pheasant tails and the things I actually use and maybe save the artsy stuff for a little later. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel the same way too. And I'm not at all confident in my dry tying right now. Um, I can catch fish on, on nymphs I tie, but dries is like a total, I mean, if you can go to the store and buy like a beautiful, accurate, painstakingly accurate dry, it's really hard to like tie something really mediocre. Like I'm, I'm kind of some good advice. Somebody gave me was like, concentrate on like three patterns and just get really good at it before you move mm-hmm. on to anything else. And I've kind of stuck to that. So mainly that way, um, that's giving me time to accumulate materials too. Like it, and I'm actually shocked how fast I've accumulated materials. Like at first I had a teeny little fly box with like nothing in it. I had, I borrowed Tom's first. My, our, our co-host Tom, he let me borrow some for a while. Then I went out and kind of accumulated my own stuff. And, you know, I started buying different dubbing and hooks and, and things like that. And, then pheasant tails and then people started giving me stuff and I have like a freezer full of dead animal parts to use for tying <laughs> that my wife's like are you ever going to use this stuff I'm like I'll get to it don't worry about it she's <laughs> like well you're taking up room in my freezer and it's disgusting <laughs> I'm like well what? I'm going to need those <laughs> I feel like that's the problem it's kind of like when you're cooking and you need just like one pinch of one spice so you go out and buy the spice and now it's sitting in your pantry for years and you don't touch it again it's like you, you start to tie flies and then you notice you need one type of material so you go buy a bunch of it you tie a couple flies and now you just got this material that you needed for that one specific pattern and it just builds up mm-hmm. yeah that's kind of where i am right now and then uh i have uh actually my mother-in-law lives near a pheasant farm in elgin and they get pheasants for us you know they always get pheasant and they cook it for thanksgiving um and uh christmas and stuff like that but she's she's got a relationship with the guy now they like know him and uh she'll say hey do you got any do you got any tails for my son-in-law so every time i go there they've got more tails they've got wings they've got like i've got like all this stuff now and i'm like i can't throw it out because if you try to buy this stuff at a fly shop it's like you know you can pay eight dollars for two pheasant tails like it's Mm -hmm. crazy but yeah, I'm I'm really into it. I really like I could see myself getting really into the tying. I, I hit it really hard, but then things got in the way and I was like, okay, I got enough in my fly box right now, I'll do it again. But I usually get the urge, like usually midsummer I want to start tying again for some reason, which is weird. Yeah, like you would think you'd want to do it in the winter, but but yeah. You're you're busy fishing. <laughs> well yeah. Nick, I and I hate to interrupt you. Um, but we're believe it or not, we've been we've been going almost an hour and a half. Oh wow. <laughs> Yeah, the time is the time has really gone by fast, and I do want to, uh, before we have to wrap this up, I, I do want to give Katie just a, a quick opportunity, maybe to, you know, what's in store for what's in store for fish untamed in the in the future. 
Um, any any specific plans or anything you you might want to share, or should folks just stay tuned to the website to see what's on the horizon? Uh, well, the website is going to be kind of moving along uh, business as usual. I do plan to uh, release a podcast probably in the next couple months. So I was hoping to do it this month, but some things have come up. Um, I just to kind of share, I cut my foot pretty bad recently, so I'm kind of in the midst of surgeries and stuff like that. So things have gotten kind of pushed back, but I'm hoping in the next couple months I should be um, starting to release the first couple episodes of a podcast that are just will just be kind of tying into the website. So focus on backcountry fly fishing, but obviously not excluding non-backcountry stuff. Um, just interesting stories, talking to interesting people. Uh, a little less on the how-to side, but not not opposed to it. So that's kind of what's in the works, and uh, I'm, I'll probably release that information just like when it's gonna co- when it's gonna happen um, on social media and just on my newsletter from the website. But uh, that's really the only thing I have in the works that's a solidified plan, and that's kind of taking up the majority of my kind of planning mind at this point. Um, I'm not really sure what's what would come after that, but that's what's kind of on my plate in the next. I'd say two to three months. Sure. Well, I know I will be, I will be watching for it. Um, you can, you can already at least count on, on one subscriber. <laughs> or two um, for sure. And, you, it, <laughs> and you've also got, um, and obviously we don't have a ton of time to get into this, but now as I, if I remember correctly, you were talking about you're planning your first um, bow hunt this fall. Is that right? Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. It'll, Hopefully, I I've got an archery tag, so it's gotta it's gotta happen or not happen at all. But um, last year I went out on my first elk hunt, and when I was scouting for elk, I was deep in deer, and that was archery season that I was out in, and I was like, I I need to come out during this season, you know, even just seeing that many animals. So sure. I've I've had a bow for a while, and I've gone on kind of like one or two. I don't know. I, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I went out for whitetails with a bow a couple times, not really expecting to shoot anything, but more just to dive in and get myself some experience out in the woods. So it'll be my first archery hunt out west, but it's basically time for me to start hitting the range and getting a lot better at shooting because I've just kind of gotten a little lazy with the practicing. So that's kind of what's next in store on that front, but I'm working, picking away at it slowly, I'd say. So you're 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 hunting for um, mule deer. Yeah, I'd start. I have a I have a rifle tag again for elk this year, but uh, mule deer I have archery. Awesome. Well, you'll have to uh, you'll have to keep us posted on on how that progresses. I'm anxious to to hear how it goes for you. That'll probably be good for me too, because having having someone to hold me accountable is is probably a good thing. Actually, get <laughs> get me out there and get me working toward it. Well, if there's if there's yeah, if there's any questions I can I can try to help or answer for you, you feel free to to drop me a note anytime. I'll I'll help if I can, and if I can't, I'll try to tell you where you can go to <laughs> to get better advice than I can give. Okay. All right, I appreciate it. Well, Katie, uh, I I do appreciate you taking the time. It's been a fantastic conversation. I really think everyone's going to enjoy it. Um, and again, for everyone out there, it's fishuntamed.com. Be sure to. Uh, check the website out thank you so much katie all right thanks guys all right have a good night have a good night nick yep good night steve nice meeting you katie you too nick
And to everyone else, thank you so much for tuning in. And the next time you you hear Nick or I talking about something and you've got a thought or comment, drop us a line to podcast at simply, excuse me, uh, I threw out the wrong website, <laughs> podcast at traditionaloutdoors.com. And you might just find yourself being a guest on the show like Katie was. Thank you so much, everyone. Take care.